Genesis 2:15 to 25. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, "You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you surely shall die." Then the Lord God said, "It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him." Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. Every time I get a new car, which I know makes it sound like I get new cars all the time, but uh, I don't. So they're actually spaced far enough apart that there's often a bunch of new technologies that have come out since the last car that I've driven for a decade or two decades. And I like to play this little game where I just do this trial and error thing of, because I'm a guy, you know, I'm like, I don't want to look at the instruction manual. I want to just figure stuff out. And at the end of days or weeks of doing that, I inevitably get stuck with several things still that I don't know how to do, like currently how to turn on the cruise control. And I have to consult the instruction manual. It's one thing not to know how to use something. It's another to misuse it. So like when we're car shopping, our boys are like always jumping in the back seat because they want to know what things are going to look and feel like from their vantage point, right? And Miles is like jumping up and down in the middle of the back seat. He's like, Dad, this one has like the coolest built-in booster in the middle seat. And I'm like, that's an armrest, okay? That's, you're, and you're about to break it off. That is not a built-in booster. I want you to imagine that you could buy a new car like literally sit down with the design team and have them explain to you not only what things do, but why they designed them that particular way. Like what was the purpose? What was the intent? Like that would be enlightening, that would be practical, that would be enjoyable. And I wanna start this new short series with this thought. Many people wrongly assume that there is no real purpose or design for sex, sexuality, and relationships other than like, what can I get out of it? What do I feel like doing in this particular moment with my body, with my heart, with my emotions, with a relationship? So our culture, and I'm picturing this car still of like, we just hurdle ahead at breakneck speed, driving something with incredible power to do good or to do great harm and we never bother to check the owner's manual. So we do a lot of self-destructive things, and we do a lot of things that are hurtful to other people. And I'm not saying we're doing those intentionally necessarily, 
but we're doing them simply because we don't know the creator's original intent and design for these things. So what we're gonna do this morning much like we did with a faith and work series before the summer, is we're gonna go back to the very beginning, Genesis one and two. We're gonna go back to the time before sin entered the world. The time where God communicates to us most clearly what his original perfect design and intent and purpose was for all kinds of different topics. But the one we're looking at for the next month is sex, sexuality, and relationships. And by the way, I just like, let me just overview this. As we go to scripture over the next month, and we will be going to scripture, because I want you to see there is a foundation in scripture for this kind of mix of topics that if you were to draw a Venn diagram, they overlap, they're different. Like a relationship is different than sex, is different than sexuality, but they do overlap. And we just want a biblical foundation. So we're on the same page of just like, I mean, one of our core values as a church is the rule of scripture in our lives of just saying, I may agree or disagree with certain things I read, but the word of God is my authority for life and for godliness. And as we do that, I hope you see a couple things about the Bible and this topic. First, the Bible's simple. Like this is a topic, a series of topics that our world has made incredibly convoluted and complicated. And the Bible is incredibly simple when it comes to these topics. And I don't mean that there's not nuance, there is, but it's not complicated. Secondly, I want you to see that the Bible is stable. It's reliable. It's not shifting with the the spirit of the age that every time someone traditional or someone progressive or this new thing is coming out, the, the Bible is just, it is what it is. And there's a stability to that unchangeable nature of God and his word. The Bible is wise. Like what we're going to read, what we're going to study is not, it's not foolish. It's not reckless. It's not insane. It's wise. Um, This one's important. The Bible corresponds to reality. So when we read rules in scripture, when we read principles in scripture that I'm going to give you several this morning from Genesis 1 and 2, these are not arbitrary. It's not like God was sitting around just like, how do I make people's lives miserable? Or, Or just like, how do I just make rules for their lives? Like God knows how he designed us as human beings. He knows his nature and therefore our nature and what he tells us corresponds to reality. Next, the Bible is compassionate. So what we read here is not mean, it's not cruel. It's not, it's not punishment, it is kindness. And, uh, and I also wanna say, and I said this in our little trailer, but the Bible is positive. Uh, we're gonna talk about a number of things this morning and what you're not gonna hear in these early chapters of Genesis, God is not like, don't do this and don't do this and don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. That's off limits. That's no fun. We're going to kind of see the other. How the Bible is incredibly positive about the way God made you and the way God intends for you to live relationships. Okay, Edith started for us in chapter two. Let's, let's back up to chapter one. I'm going to give you a, a handful of principles There are 12, so I realize I have about one to three minutes max on each of these 12 principles, so listen fast, okay? (laughs) But these are important. I didn't want to leave out like three of these because again, we're, we're laying a foundation this morning of like, this is God's original beautiful intent for these topics. And we read in the first four words of the Bible, in the beginning, God. You know, like, what does that have to do with sex, sexuality, and relationships. Well, it has everything to do with everything. Because your first principle is that life is centered on 
and finds its meaning and purpose in God. It's centered on God and it finds its meaning and purpose in God because there, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God. The, the, the Bible is saying God was there at the beginning. He was there before the beginning. He's the uncreated creator of everything else that exists. So if you're looking at this spectrum of like on a scale of one to 10, where does God land? And the idea is he's not on that scale. He's not on our scale. He's not the best possible version of us. God is qualitatively different. He's categorically different than everything else in the universe. He is infinitely, eternally, unchangeably God. And we will never make sense of these topics or any other topic unless our lives are centered on God and his plan for us and living our day-to-day choices with reference to him. So in the beginning, God. Let's add one more word. In the beginning, God created. Creation implies ownership. It implies design. It implies purpose. And we recognize that everywhere else in the created world, that if you invent something or you write something, you are the owner of that thing that came from your mind. Even if you wrote something, it's your intellectual property. It belongs to you. Other people can say, I don't like what you made or I don't like what you wrote, but the reality is you can like it, you can hate it. It's still yours, okay? And, and it was your design and it came from you and in some way it represents or carries your intent, Now, here's what we should understand from the first five words of the Bible. In the beginning, God created, which means we don't create our own identity, meaning, or purpose. We certainly don't use sex or sexuality to say, now I finally have an identity. Now I'm finally someone. See, the Bible is saying from the very first words, we don't define for ourselves something as important as how we use our sexuality. We are created, therefore we discover who we are and how we live in relationship with God and by simply reading his word that he gave us to understand him and his will. Paul David Tripp says this, perhaps two of the most important questions you could ask about anything in your life are, one, what was the creator's purpose for this thing when it was made? And two, What does it look like for me to recognize the creator's ownership over this thing as I use it in my daily living? You see how transformative that would be if you're like, God, I recognize you as the the unmoved mover, as the one who had the perfect design. What was your purpose for gender? What was your purpose for sex? What was your purpose for relationships when these things were your idea? And what does it look like for me to honor your ownership of those things and your ownership of my life as I use those things in everyday life? So we're starting here with the most basic principle, which is you were made by God for God. Let's keep going. Principle two, male and female are part of a larger creation pattern of differentiation. Here's what I mean. Before we get to any mention of human beings, let alone sexuality, God separated light and darkness, day and night, morning and evening, the waters and the heavens, the land and the sea. Now, this is really self-evident, but light is not darkness. Darkness is not light. Land is not sea. Sea is not land. They go together in complementary ways, 
but they're obviously different. Okay, so in a series of these differentiated but complementary opposites, God created humanity as male and female. Genesis 1 verse 27 says that. So at the risk of overstating the obvious, here's what this means. God created male and female as part of a larger creation pattern of differentiation. That means there are not three or 10 or 58 sexes or genders. Sorry, Facebook. God's design is for two and two biological sexes, male and female. That's what Genesis 1.27 says. Again, at the risk of sounding really obvious, in God's economy, a male is not a female and a female is not a male. Okay, and we're talking about God's perfect creation. We're talking about before the brokenness, we can get to some of that next week and say, how does that impact things? But from the beginning, this differentiation of male and female and the fact that there were two and only two is part of a bigger pattern. Going on, um, let, me, let me kind of fill in around verse 27 now. So chapter one, verses 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now here's your third principle. Male and female bear the imago Dei the image of God. And this is the most fundamental truth about your identity. No matter who you are, what your background is, what other things you believe, you were made in the image of God. This means a lot of things, and I'm not going to take the time this morning to unpack all of that, but kind of at a minimum, being made in the image of God means you have an eternal soul. You have a moral nature and the ability to learn from God and distinguish between right and wrong. You have emotions, you have rational thought, you have dominion as God's representatives on earth. Now, I want you to note a couple important implications of this, that your male and female bear the image of God. What that means is male and female are equal, hear me, they're equal in dignity, and we could say they're ontologically equal at their being they are the same. And you could say the same is true of adults and children. It's not like smaller people have less worth or dignity than bigger people or that women have less honor or dignity than men. The fact that we're all made in God's image means an equality of dignity and worth. I also said that if this is the truest thing about you, that you are made in the image of God, the most defining thing about you is not your sexuality, let alone your sexual preference. And what being made in the image of God does for all of us is it doesn't eradicate all these other things that are true of your identity. Like I'm about six foot tall, have red hair, brown eyes, etc. But it relativizes those other things. It means that's not the ultimate thing that's true about you. It's not the truest thing about you, to put it another way. The truest thing about you is you are made in the image of God and for his glory. Okay. Number four, fourth principle. The first three commands in the Bible to human beings, the first three require a male-female sexual relationship. Chapter 1, verse 28, this is the first command God gives in the Bible. And God blessed them, that's Adam and Eve, and God said to them, be fruitful 
and multiply and fill the earth. Now, we've studied this in other contexts, like the faith and work context. We've referred to this verse and the following verses as the cultural mandate, the idea that God commands humankind together, men and women, to not only bear his image, but to live as his intentional representatives on earth. To think through, like to have dominion, to govern over the rest of creation so that its focus is directed to the glory of God and that there's flourishing and there's, there's creativity and there's bounty and there's fulfillment in God. That's what we were meant to do. But again, notice the first three imperatives, be fruitful, multiply, and fill. Now those terms are more than sexual, but they are not less than sexual. Okay. There are many ways to be fruitful, to multiply and to fill something, but again, at risk of stating the obvious, these commands cannot be fulfilled apart from sexual reproduction. You're, you're not going to reproduce. You're not going to be fruitful. You're not going to multiply. You're not going to fill the earth apart from a relationship. Now, this is always like kind of fun where it gets into like, what, what other alternatives did God have available to him? You know, he could have, I think, made us reproduce however he wanted to. He could have made us reproduce asexually like planarians or starfish, where it's just like, oops, I cut off my arm in a farming accident and there's another person now. <laughs> That's not what God did. It is a scientific fact and it is a theological fact that humans cannot reproduce asexually. It is a scientific fact and it is a theological fact that we cannot reproduce through a same-sex relationship. It's just true that like we reproduce only through the union of a male and a female. To put it differently, we fulfill the cultural mandate only through the sexual union of a male and female. That, that's how near and dear this thing is to the heart of God, that when he's commanding humans for the first time ever, how do I want you to live your lives? Big picture, you're going to have to marry someone of the opposite gender and start reproducing, start having children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and raising them to the glory of God. Fifth principle is that the man was given a spiritual leadership role. Chapter 2, verse 15, where we started this morning, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, the chronology here is really important. This is before the creation of the first woman. Okay, Adam alone is placed in the garden and given dominion before she enters the world. Adam alone is told, don't eat the fruit of that one tree. Now implied in that is that when God then brings the woman to the man, he is going to take a role in her life and any subsequent children's lives to teach them God's expectations. He was supposed to protect his family from the potential harms of the things that God told them to avoid. He was supposed to lead his family to spiritually know and love and trust and obey God. And this pattern of male headship in both the nuclear family and the spiritual family continues throughout the Bible. From the beginning before sin ruined everything, there's the foundation right here. But men were designed to lead, to serve, to sacrifice for, to protect. But men alone isn't where it's at because look at this. Principle six, 
man's aloneness was the first thing in creation that was not good. Chapter 2, verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. Now, he uses the word alone, not the word lonely. The point is not Adam was lonely and he's frantic and he's like, oh no, what do I do? Like, there's no one like me. The point is not that singleness was a curse. The point is not that every single person is supposed to get married. And Jesus and Paul later in the New Testament will speak directly to that. There's a gift of singleness. But the point is, man could not fulfill his God-given responsibilities without the woman. So this isn't like a whoops in God's creation, but God deliberately mistimed the creation of the man and the woman so that we all learn this principle of like, it's just not good that the man is alone and he's not going to be able to do this mandate from God by himself. Woman is going to come in in this glorious and amazing partnership with him now. And that's principle seven. Man and woman were created at a different time and in a different manner. Okay, you may have noticed man was created in chapter two, verse seven from the dust of the ground and the breath of God. The woman was created in chapter two, verses 21 and 22, from the side of man. Now, you ever think about this, like why didn't God make Adam and Eve simultaneously? Because if the point had been God trying to show us men and women are absolutely equal and identical and interchangeable in every way, this surely would have been the way that he did it. Just boom, same time, same material, same exact thing, same exact charge. But he actually did the opposite. And the New Testament, as it comments on this, 1 Timothy 2, verses 12 and 13, tells us why he did the opposite, why he formed, to quote Paul, Adam was formed first, then Eve, because God was deliberately establishing a different kind of authority and responsibility for the man than for the woman. So, so two different times, two different manners of creation. Principle number eight Woman was created as the suitable complement to and companion of man. So chapter 2, verse 18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. Solution, I will make a helper fit for him. Helper is the Hebrew word ezer, means one who assists, supports, or renders aid. And uh, our culture probably immediately takes offense at that, both men and women. We're like, women are like, wait, you're telling me I'm supposed to be like some servant or some slave? No, that's not what the word means. Guys are like, wait, you're telling me I'm inadequate on my own and I need a special helper? Yes, that part's true. Okay. Um, what I want you to note is like this word ezer, helper, is used 21 times in the Old Testament. 16 of those times it refers to God as the helper of his covenant people. The, the preponderance of uses of this word is not someone who is in a position of inferiority serving someone who's in a position of superiority. It, it's actually a beautiful and amazing thing saying this other party has a deficiency or an inadequacy on his or her own or their own and someone with a ton of authority a ton of love, a ton of gifting from God comes alongside to say, hey, we were, we were meant to do this together. And this idea of the, the fit helper then, some of your Bibles that you're reading may have translated that suitable or something like that. It, it's an interesting Hebrew expression that literally means one corresponding to or a complementary opposite. 
And here's what's important. It speaks of someone who is simultaneously the same and different in really important ways, in God-designed ways. And, and Adam recognizes the sameness and the difference the moment he wakes up from this sleep and he's there or, or she's there and you have principle nine that Adam then recognized both equality and differentiation between the sexes. So Adam's waking up, chapter 2, verse 23. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now, let me reset the context for you. He says, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. What's that about? Well, remember, Adam has just named the animals. So he's been in the garden, and we don't know how long. The Bible doesn't say. But he's been by himself tending the garden and learning how to govern it. And, and God's, God's bringing all the animals to him. And he's like, ah, platypus, giraffe, um, I don't know, frog, you know. And, and days or weeks or months of doing this sort of thing, he's like, yeah, that's amazing. That's cute. That's fuzzy. That's, I don't know if they, could he say scary yet before the curse? I don't know. Uh, but he's seeing all these different things. Then God puts him to sleep, takes this rib, fashions a woman, wakes him up. And he's like, to paraphrase, he's like, ooh, I've never seen anything like you before. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. And again, he's, he's announcing, it's interesting, the first words of human being recorded in scripture are a poem, a, a love poem, romance. Like, ooh, you're of the same substance as me. And he's recognizing a fundamental equality of this creature, this woman. You are bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, yet simultaneously different than me, female, not male. Okay, so Adam's waking up. He's recognizing like, oh, I wasn't meant to do life alone. And I wasn't just meant to do life with my dogs. Man's best friend. He's like, nah, she's my best friend. He was made for companionship with the woman. And I mean, physically, sexually, emotionally, spiritually, vocationally, and in other ways, they were made to fit one another in a complementary way where they are both the same and different at the same time. And that leads us to this principle, which is explicitly stated now in the text Principle 10, marriage is designed by God as a permanent one flesh union between a man and a woman. Okay, so God makes the woman for the man and he brings her to him. Then he says this in chapter 2, verse 24, but I want you to notice God is using Adam and Eve as a template for every other marriage that's going to follow for however many thousands of years God intends history to go on, okay? So chapter 2, verse 24, he says, therefore, because she is bone of your bones and flesh of your flesh, and yet different, she's woman taken out of man, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. These are the words of God. He's setting a pattern. He's setting a template. And we know He's actually not talking about Adam and Eve here per se. He's talking about all future marriages. How do we know that? Because Adam didn't have a father and mother to leave to go cling to his wife. What God is intentionally doing is saying, this is now the prototypical marriage. This is how I designed it. 
and all these other future men that come along in successive generations are going to need to leave mommy and daddy and, and take responsibility to find a woman and have this kind of one flesh companionship with, do life together with. Okay, by the way, the, the word one, as in one flesh, is important, is the same word in the, if you were a Jew, the best known verse in the Bible to you was Deuteronomy 6.4. It's called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, that's incredible because we're like, well, we, I know there's, one, there's only one true God, but eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. So even the word one, hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, speaks of unity across diversity, Father, Son, and Spirit, which is why marriage is male and female. It is a unity, a oneness across diversity. Now, before we just drop this point, let me show you two important places that the New Testament quotes and then offers a commentary on Genesis 2.24. And what we'll see is that the New Testament actually proves God intended this to be the pattern, the template for every marriage everywhere across all cultures. Okay, so Matthew 19, verses three through six is the first one. And it's a confrontation between Jesus, the son of God, and the religious leaders of his day. It goes like this. The Pharisees came up to Jesus and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And to just pause there real quick, they're saying, hey, settle down or settle this debate that's going on between all these different rabbis like Shammai over here and Hillel over here. And there's two different major views about like, when can you just like up and quit on your spouse? And Jesus' answer is incredible because he goes all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2. He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, it's very fashionable for people to say today that Jesus never addressed issues like gender and sexuality in marriage. Therefore, we're free to do whatever we want because Jesus didn't talk about it. But it's right here. Jesus explicitly reaffirmed the original creative design and purpose of sex, sexuality, and relationships. He explicitly says God made male and female and marriage is a covenant between a man and a woman. And it is in this sexual union where two people become one flesh in a marriage that God both designed and blesses. Blesses. Not just approves with like holding his nose and looking away and being like, well, okay, here we go. Blesses, honors, gives dignity to. Then the apostle Paul is gonna go ahead and build on this in Ephesians chapter five, verses 22 through 32. Let me read these for you. He's giving instructions to a church. A bunch of people are just now coming to faith in Jesus for the first time and they're living in the Greco-Roman empire and sexuality like today is just all over the place. Like anything goes, whatever you can get away with. And he says this, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, 
so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Now here it is. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. I want you to note, Paul quotes Genesis 2.24, just like Jesus did, reaffirming the original design, purpose, intent for marriage. So his differentiation of gender roles here, whatever we make of them, they're not created out of thin air. And they're certainly not just like some capitulation to cultural norms of his day. Because if you know anything about scripture writers, they really didn't care a whole lot about norms of their day. If they felt like something else honored God, they would just say it. So what he's showing us here is that any differentiation is rooted in the Genesis story. But he shows us something else. When he says this mystery is profound and I am saying it refers to Christ and the church, here's what he's saying, family. He's saying sex and sexuality and marriage are about the gospel. He's saying they are a picture of Christ in the church. He's saying God gave us marriage and he gave us the gift of sex in marriage to portray something of the depth of his love for us and his delight over us. That's what he's saying. And this is holy scripture. Rebecca McLaughlin says it this way, this signpost to Christ is why marriage is male and female and why husbands and wives are called to different roles. Like Christ and the church, it's love across difference. Like Christ and the church, it's love built on sacrifice. Like Christ and the church, it is a flesh uniting, life creating, never ending, exclusive love. Marriage is meant to point us to Christ. So we can't say that God doesn't care about our sexuality. We can't say sex is no big deal and it's certainly not a gospel issue because the Bible says the opposite. It says marriage, the marriage of a man and a woman portrays that love across difference. It portrays the gospel in a way that nothing else on earth does. That's God's design. Now, I wanna end with with two more just broad observations and I'm gonna ask you to be mature about this. Because the 11th principle is God designed a ridiculously over-the-top, pleasure-filled world. I'm just talking about who our God is. So at your earliest ages of any kind of scientific discovery, you learn about your five senses. And I just want you to think for a moment. I mean, we've all lived, obviously, way post-fall. So everything's broken. Nothing's quite the way it was supposed to be. But we still look at a world that is incredible. And we, we marvel at the sights and the sounds and the tastes and the aromas and the textures of things. God just filled his world with gratuitous beauty. It didn't have to be that way, 
but it is. And God is like everywhere, just like, it's like we, we studied in the Psalms a, a few weeks ago of like the heavens declaring the glory and the beauty and the creativity and the majesty and the splendor and the love of God. It's like everywhere we look, like we're smelling something. I mean, like, I mean, there are bad smells too, but we're smelling something and we're like, ooh, that, you know, it's like when, you, when you're away and you come home and like maybe a roommate or a spouse or one of your kids has been baking something and you walk and you're like, ooh, I can already taste it. You know, I'm getting hungry just thinking about it now, you know, or like that, that steak, like sizzling on the last stage of searing before it's on my plate and in my stomach and like touch and all that gratuitously beautiful. Now, again, this is why I asked you to be mature. Okay. I'm not trying to be cute and I'm not trying to be graphic, but I am wanting to be candid with you. God could have made reproduction incredibly boring, but he didn't. Arousal, sexual pleasure, and orgasm. Do you know who designed that? You're like, oh, science discovered. No, God designed that kind of pleasure. He designed, again, in the story of like what he, all the things that he could have done, he designed human beings with body parts that are capable of giving and receiving extraordinary pleasure. And I'm not trying to be sensational about that. I'm just saying the biblical story of humanity begins with a naked, shameless young couple in a garden with a command to go make babies, okay? And if, if that doesn't fit your theology of God and his kindness to you, his love, his blessing, of how he's like, I am a God of pleasure and delight and I want my utmost highest creation, humankind made in my image to experience delight and pleasure as a reflection of my love for them, to help them understand something really, really deep and important about this stuff that we're gonna come to of like, I would stop at no links to bring you back from death and pain and hurt and harm to infinite eternal pleasure forevermore. So God designed a ridiculously over-the-top, pleasure-filled world. But then final principle 12, from the very beginning, we were meant to experience that pleasure and joy within God-given boundaries. So humanity's pleasures, even in Genesis 1 and 2, were not limitless. There were a couple limits, and those limits were designed by a good God, like the same God that designed arousal said, I want to maximize your pleasure by giving you just a couple boundaries. And I want you to hear this, that God designed you as a human being to find pleasure, delight, satisfaction in the same place that he finds glory. It's not like I can glorify God with my life and make all these sacrifices. It's going to be really hard, but at least I glorify God with my life. And it was miserable, but I get to die and go to heaven. No, like from, from day one of God's original design, he's like, this is for my glory. This is for my exaltation. This is for my worship. This is for my praise and for your delight. But that's why there's boundaries. Like again, to paraphrase Keller, he says something like this. Freedom is not the absence of all restraints, but the presence of the correct ones. So when God says to Adam, eat this and this and this and this and this and this, but not that, God is saying, I want you to have the ultimate freedom. 
which is the presence of the correct restraints. You are not meant to do life without reference to God. You're not meant to go eat that fruit, figure out what's right and wrong on your own and just say like, oh, I don't need God anymore. Because as soon as you cut off that relationship, you're losing out on the source of your delight and satisfaction. When he says to the man and the woman, leave your parents and cling to one another, one man, one woman for life, not the absence of boundaries, but the presence of the right boundaries. So again, I'm wrapping up with this. God could have made sex miserable. He could have banned it altogether. And we should submit to him just because he's God. Back to point one. He could say, I made all these fun things. I'm going to show them to you and I'm going to take them away and say, don't touch. Like setting donuts in front of my kids and just being like, see those? You're never going to touch those. But I am later. I'm going to enjoy those later. That's, that's not the kind of like stingy or cruel God that we have where he sets something out there and he's like, see how beautiful this is? See how alluring this is? See how this is going to feel in your body and feel in your soul as you become one with another human being? Can't have that. Again, if he had said that, that would be the right thing because he's God. But God called us to love and trust and obey him because he is God, because he is worthy and because that's where our ultimate satisfaction, our ultimate freedom, and our ultimate delight can be found. And if some of you this morning would even say, like, I, I'm waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and like chomping at the bit to have this kind of relationship that you're making reference to, but I just, I will never be satisfied. I'll never be free and I'll never have that kind of delight until that marriage. So God, please don't come back, you know, you pre-trib rapturists, you know, it's like, do not come back until I'm married, please. Well, we're, we're missing the point that like the satisfaction and freedom and joy that we were meant to find in God and God alone far surpasses any of that. And at the same time, God wants his children to be crazy happy and his design for sex, sexuality and relationships proves it.